Hi, John. Hey, Nicole. You ready? All right, yeah, let's record this intro here. I'm Nicole Mears. I'm John Davis. And this is our podcast, Shape the Conversation. And this is another interview format episode for the podcast. A lot of times it's a podcast where Nicole and I talk about working at Shape.io, where we make software for digital marketing companies to manage their campaigns. But we like to mix in interviews and we focus on voices here from Central Oregon, where we're located. So this week we'll be talking with Julie Harrelson, who's the managing director at Cascades Angel Fund. Uh, she's been a director, an operator, an overall just awesome businesswoman. Julie's amazing, yep. So she's going, uh, we're just going to basically pester her with questions all about her fantastic experience. Yeah, so Julie and I have a little history in that one. I've looked at Julie for advice for years now. Two, I've also pitched Cascade Angels a few times and been turned down for funding in the past. So you'll hear some of my probably uh, open wounds there still from the process of, of raising funding back in 2014-15 when we were going through that. If you are raising money in the Northwest, you, you are probably going to pitch Julie at some point. If you're at a seed stage, there's not a lot of uh, woman-led directors of VC funds, so it's super interesting to get her perspective on that. She's got a lot to say about the demographics of entrepreneurs today and how it's been changing and how it might change in the future. And how she'd like to be part of that. Yeah, and she's the one really writing the checks and pulling the strings. I mean, that's a lot of power to have in a startup ecosystem. She is really green lighting a lot of these ideas with her investors that are able to cross that big hurdle of raising some funding to kind of get going and get off the ground. So we picked her brain a little bit on, you know, what should you be looking to add to your pitch if you're talking to Julie, what types of strategies she would have when you're pitching VCs. And with that, we'll kick off our interview with Julie Harrelson of Cascades Angel Fund. All right, Julie, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. It's great to be here, John. Yeah, thank you for having me. So as I said, we're recording here from Bend, Oregon, and everybody's kind of got, except those that grew up here, like Nicole, but everybody sort of got there. How'd you find your way to, to Ben's story? What's yours? Yeah, so I think people come here in a variety of ways. And the way I got here is I, I vacationed here and uh, from Portland for a long time and just had an opportunity to start a fund here to invest in early stage companies in Oregon. So I got excited about the possibility. And actually today, August, it was five years ago that I started having coffee with people on, in Bend I knew like six people, and I came and said, hey, let's let's have a fund here and provide local capital in Oregon for early-stage startups. Definitely Cascade Angels, which is, which is your fund, is one of the, you know, real few funds in town. How many funds do we have right now in Central Oregon Bend? Well, there are a number of different efforts, and there's a lot of informal yeah. funding. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, rich people's bank accounts, which is always a form of funding. That goes on, and so we formed in October of 2013 and made our first investment in the spring of 2014. So in, in the range of Who funds, was that in? What company was that? Who got the first Cascade the first Angel dollar? The first Cascade Angel dollar was Dropler. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And now we have close to 20 investments, and they're primarily in Oregon and more broadly in the Pacific Northwest. 
And do those skew to any one industry or are they kind of across the board? That's a great question, Nicole. So no, we're industry agnostic. So we have an apparel company, Wild Fang. We have a biotech company called Nema Metrics. We have a number of SaaS companies. We have consumer products and outdoor products-based companies. So it's really a- across the board with the organizing principle being to have a really diverse p- portfolio focusing on Oregon-based and the Pacific Northwest more broadly. That's fantastic. So it's not just Oregon or Central Oregon companies. If you're in Washington, Idaho, is it any states? Can they, can they apply? So we think of it as a Pacific Northwest, and so we've looked at deals in, in uh, Washington. We have one deal that's in the Portland metro, which is just over the river in Vancouver. And we have some great network contacts in Boise. So we see probably 300 plus deals a year. Yeah. And that is a, that's a huge number of companies to be looking at. If you've tried to raise seed money since, you know, that 2014 in Oregon or in the Northwest, you've probably been in a room with Julie trying, <laughs> trying to ask her and her compadres for money. I've been in a room asking Julie and the compadres for money. I've never been successful at getting Julie an investment, but I could say it's definitely an intimidating situation to be in. So talk to people a little bit about once they fill out your form online on CascadeAngels.com. Yes. What can they expect to happen? So they can get to our process through CascadeAngels.com. We use a site called Gust that basically pairs investors with companies seeking funds. And by the way, you should come back and pitch again. (laughs) So the way that works is that we have this application process, companies apply, we do some early screening, and then if they pass through that early screening process, they get invited to come and present to the investors. And at that point, if they get a green light, then we form a small due diligence team, and that diligence team runs those companies through a variety of questions. We try to make it really efficient for the entrepreneur. We do that in about a 30-day period. And so what our goal is to provide seed money, so not super, super early, not concept stage, but they're usually at launch where they've got some revenue and so on. They're ready to kind of accelerate through that and usually raising somewhere between 500000 and $2 million. And so for the entrepreneurs out there who are listening to this, basically what happens then is we try to go from the pitch to a decision within about 60 days. That's our target. Because we learned early on that funds like ours that are collaborative venture funds often take a really long time to make decisions. And so we're trying to differentiate on the speed and quality and also be active investors but not activists. So we're there to support the entrepreneurs strategically. And I think you found our process pretty friendly, didn't you, John? Definitely. Okay, yeah. okay, good deal. Yeah, and when you say investors, that that's your LPs, as they call them. So you've got a pool of, of basically people you're going to to try to raise the funds to invest out, and that's a big part of your job is, is recruiting these people to come not only invest just capital, but their knowledge as well. Yeah, that's, that's right. So we seek a broad range of investors in the fund that have domain experience across the board. And I think, you know, we do this survey every year and the entrepreneurs have given us really high ratings in terms of dealing with us and our investor group. What I liked most about your guys' process was you got follow-up 
you know, you got, we weren't at a stage where you guys were quite ready to invest on in us. We were really early stage, kind of 2015 um, was the last time we pitched you guys. But it wasn't just, no, sorry, not interested, end of email. You know, somebody followed up. They said, we, you know, the members had these concerns about your business model or we're maybe feel like we couldn't add enough value or whatever reasons they gave you kind of concrete things you could work on and, and formulate for the next pitch. So is that something you guys are constantly kind of working on? Cause you know, these are probably gonna be the same people kind of pitching you the next idea. Yeah. Along. So we're, we're committed to that. And part of the reason is the genesis of Cascade Angels is a group of business leaders here in Bend who said coming up out of the recession, it's really important to have local capital to invest in entrepreneurs. And in order to do that, in my view of the world, you ha- this is the world according to Julie, <laughs> you, have to, you have to provide expertise. So you have to pair, you can provide capital, but it's also like, where's the expertise? And so when we're reviewing companies, we're always trying to provide actionable feedback. And that has proven to be really valuable because the entrepreneurs then sometimes what happens is they come in and they present we're saying no not now but come back in 90 days look at these three key areas and if you can get some progress or traction then let's continue the conversation so we try to be really clear in those gating factors so that people don't get strung out like for a long long time but it is true that in in entrepreneur time three months or six months or a year can be a huge huge change in a company's trajectory yeah. And I think we're lucky in Ben to at least have people like you kind of focused on that and that are local focused and that you guys are obviously evaluating the pitches really closely and their viability as a business. It's not it's not a charitable effort on your guys' behalf, but I think you're in a little bit of a unique position is that you do have this mission to promote Central Oregon and this area and that's probably I think going to be the case more and more with regional type angels you know your differentiator the way you're able to make your pitch is that you have that regional focus so how do you balance that you know like you can't just look purely at the pitch and the numbers there's another big factor there that is kind of affecting what companies you're getting involved with yeah these are such great questions john so it's interesting so we have a for-profit motive right our our goal is to work with these companies to generate a good financial outcome. And it's also true that we are interested in the community benefit part of this too, in terms of job creation and living wage jobs. And it's interesting to see with a very small amount of money in the scheme of things invested in these companies, how many jobs have been created in Oregon. Like there were, I think, 39 new jobs created in Oregon by our portfolio companies just in the last year. Wow. So while now we're at full employment and people aren't as worried about that, in a community like Bend, having economic diversity, so different types of industries and economic strength in terms of living wage jobs and then economic inclusion in terms of the types of companies, the types of leaders that we have at the helm of these companies is really important. And so I think those two things create a really powerful platform in Oregon to create some entrepreneurial success, let's call it, yeah. Do you feel like you've had to turn down any pitch decks or any opportunities you've seen because maybe they 
out from the Bay Area or California, or they didn't quite fit what you guys were looking for there, or, or the, the the profile of company you're looking at. Well, the the ones that we have turned down, I would say. So, if you think about this in the scheme of things, we're a small fund; we're not a huge fund. So, we maybe make five to eight investments a year. If you're seeing three hundred, you're actually turning down a lot of of opportunities. And so, when we do that, if the opportunity is further flung geographically, say Northern California or Colorado or something like that, what we say is you're welcome to apply, but it will have to be really compelling because you're in a very competitive market, even just with the Oregon and Pacific Northwest opportunities, because also we only make a few investments every year, right? If we were making 40 investments a year, it it might be a different story, but so we end up saying no a lot. And that's an interesting feature of this, which is one of the reasons why we've tried to give actionable feedback as much as we can, because we want people with these great new ideas to succeed and come back to us. So I have kind of a converse question to that, too. And I, I know this is probably something that you get asked a lot and maybe maybe a little tough to answer. But kind of after you know looking at these five to eight companies who've made it through successfully, are there any shared traits that they, you, the entrepreneurs, or the pitches actually have? Yeah, great question, Nicole. So I'll just tell you a quick story about this. We were having our annual meeting last year, and most of our portfolio CEOs were there, and I was they were all standing in a group, and I was looking across the room, and I'm like, this is really interesting. So there are lots of different approaches as an entrepreneur, right? But if you split it into kind of two buckets, there are entrepreneurs that want to win, they want to be the king or queen of the world, right? And there are entrepreneurs that want to be successful at multiple levels. And if you look at the entrepreneurs that we've backed, they fall into that category where they want success. So they want financial success. They want success in their community. They want success for their people. They want success for their product. So that's very interesting to me. And that was not something, say, that we necessarily set out to do, but it's a very, very strong group of leaders and some of them emergent leaders right then we also look at just fundamentals of the business right and if we look at the pitches in terms of a marketing or sales effort right it's like how clear and how compelling is the story in terms of what problem is this solving and if it's solving a problem does anybody really care in other words is there actually a market for it And then we look at the technical aspects of it, depending on what type of company it is. If it's a consumer products company, there are different things that we look at than, say, a SaaS company. Are they technologically enabled? In other words, can they scale? Do they have operational strength? And also, there's a timing question. So you can have a great idea, but if it's too early or too late, it's not going to work. And there are other things which I'm probably not listing out as clearly, but... To find operational strength, you're saying... Entrepreneurs that have probably like either been through it before or have people on their team that have led teams can That's, execute on an idea? Yeah, so it's really helpful if somebody's been through this before because then they have likely made every mistake because most first-time entrepreneurs do no matter how we <laughs> seek help. But that's part of it. But when I say operational strength, what I'm thinking about is that oftentimes people have a really good idea, which is awesome. But the question is, can they execute? Right, so can they take that idea and turn it into something that's an investable company? 
Now, we see a lot of companies that are really awesome companies. They're run by somebody great, they have a great product, they have a great service, and it's likely that the company is going to be successful over a long period of time and that those people will be able to be in their communities, support their families, create a great living. But for us, those are not the investable companies, right? The comp- and, I, and I love those small businesses. I think that they're awesome and really important to the backbone of a community. But for us, we're looking for this return piece. So they have to have the ability to take that idea and make a small business and then scale it up so it has a larger value and then creates a return for the investors. And that's it's a different process than having a, a successful small business. And both are completely valid. It just is what kind of entrepreneur do you want to be and, and what will that product bear or service bear in terms of scalability? Yeah, I can say from the entrepreneur's perspective and somebody who's pitched a lot of VCs that the one thing you definitely don't want to do in your pitch at any point is don't say lifestyle company. Don't say <laughs> your small business. Don't, these are trigger words that are big red flags for you. And I think that's a key thing that to think about when you're going to pitch VCs. And what's really, really tough and what I've really, really struggled with was towing this line between practicality and what you could actually do, what you could actually, sales you could actually achieve, while also painting this huge vision of this $100 million company that you could be. Yeah. And a lot of times on a pitch deck you're working with smoke and mirrors, a lot of hypotheticals. And that to me is a big struggle and I think really hard making that next step to getting investment because you need to figure out where's your next customer, where's your next revenue source gonna be coming from as a business owner, where at the same time, trying to paint some picture of this huge place we're going that few companies have ever reached. Yes. And that to me is a little bit of the friction with the VC world right now that I see personally, especially in some regions like the Northwest to where a lot of people aren't quite seeing that. You've got to pitch that huge vision, even if you know, the actual market size is a little under that. You know, there's some middle ground there you've got to be talking about. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's human nature to want to be convinced of things, right? So that, I mean, and that's, that's the double-edged sword of, of this. And I think that when we look at it, what we're trying to do is to say, is this, and, and this is probably different than some VCs, right? You're going to have a different look it from larger funds, from you know core venture capitalists, you may have a different view than you have in a local fund that kind of knows the region, knows the players. And so when I talk to people, I always just say, you know, this needs to be authentic. And when we talk about that from, say we're thinking about that as a, the pitch as a marketing effort by the company, I always say like, what can you model this out? Like, can you show us in three to five years? Because it gets to be, if you get pitch decks that all have like it's flat for a year and a <laughs> half, and then all of a sudden there's this boom, 
arrow that goes straight up. <laughs> hockey stick row. You know, yeah, the big hockey stick. I'd love to see a pitch deck one time that was like realistic and was like, <laughs> okay, eight months in, we're going to have all these issues. Sales are going to go slower. We might even go down a little bit while we build this product. Then we're going to spike up. And then it'd be funny to see like the super yeah. squiggly line and, in a pitch deck. Somewhere. Yeah, and, we, and, and actually we're seeing like in the last year or two more of that kind of hmm. reality built into the models, right? Because the investors know. I mean, if they're looking at the hockey stick, they're like, oh, no, another hockey stick, right? Yeah. And we're, you know, we're not looking for unicorn-type returns in our investments, right? Like our stated return multiple is 3 to 5x. So we're looking for companies that are performing well, that grow, that are well-managed, that, that scale, you know. And we love it if they go, if they go big. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Now, are you seeing, when you're seeing 4 or 5x, determining what that 4 or 5x is wheeled off of? A lot of times, I imagine you guys are investing on convertible notes and on kind of caps. So when, the size of companies you're looking to build in order to get that type of return are a lot of times 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollar type companies. Well, I mean, it re- we're early, right? So what, when we think about seed stage, we're usually thinking of valuations that are south of $10 million or so. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll invest in companies that are a little bit further along. Yeah, I think generally speaking, when you invest in the seed stage, that's, that's our range. Have the demographics of the types of people pitching you changed at all over the last four or five years? I know that's not a huge scale of time to really notice big trends, but... Are you noticing more women that are coming in to pitch you guys? Does it, are the entrepreneurs younger, older? Are you noticing any difference in the types of people coming to you? That's interesting, you know, because there's this sort of archetype of the of the <laughs> entrepreneur and what the entrepreneur is. And since we started, it's been pretty pretty diverse. And you know, we we like to make an effort to be inclusive in our review of companies and so on and so right now about 25 percent of our ceos are women which outpaces the national average right (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's a it's a major difference has that been a concerted effort so i've done a fair amount of research on on this and there was an article I, i think it was in harvard business review but it talked about how when entrepreneurs come in Oftentimes what happens is male entrepreneurs are asked about the opportunity and female opportunities are asked about risk. And it's much more difficult to defend risk than it is to promote opportunity, it turns out. So part of um, what we try to do is ask a a whole variety of questions and just be aware that we don't want to just go to to the pattern recognition. We want to really look at the quality of the opportunity and the leadership and the market that's being addressed. Yeah, and sorry, Nicole, I'm dominating some of the questions here, and I'm trying really hard not to just be a frustrated entrepreneur who's been turned down <laughs> by hundreds of VCs. Uh, but I think that's really interesting, kind of honing in on the risk versus opportunity. I think that's something for all VCs to keep in mind who are hearing pitches from men, women, and all types is to think about what inherent biases you may have that you're not even aware of. Yeah, well, I mean, we call them implicit bias or unconscious bias for a reason, right? And so there's just a lot, a lot of information regarding this now, and and I think a concerted emphasis. And there's lots of data to show 
that you know diverse teams do well. And so it's something that we look at as a potential success factor. It's not the only screen that we use in terms of reviewing deals, but it's certainly something that I'm aware of. And part of the reason I'm aware of it is because I'm a woman fund manager. And I, you know, I think it's like less than 10% of fund managers across the country are, are women. And I've faced a lot of challenges in my career personally. So I like to take a look at it, you know, and just make sure that we're, we're not missing opportunities because there's some bias that we're not aware of that is making us not make great decisions. Now, do you feel like as a woman, you you take a pitch from a woman and maybe you're looking at it a little harder or maybe there's some like reverse there? <laughs> I don't know. This is again, the paranoid entrepreneur pitcher would be. And I would say that's probably, you know, the disadvantages a female entrepreneur face today, I can't even imagine, you know, going through the pitching process. I definitely do fit a little bit more of the archetype of who that looks like, who's going to go on that path of pitching. And I think one thing I've thought a lot about lately is I've had kids now and, and thought about it like I was kind of like trained through my upbringing childhood to, to think that way. And I think it's hard for me to put myself in the perspective of you guys and, and Nicole that that isn't so much the con- consistent message you're getting through mm-hmm. through your upbringing. So what, what are ways you think that you know, we can start to have more women women in those rooms pitching you and recondition a, a you know society to, I think, encourage female entrepreneurs more than we're doing today. Yeah, and let's let's broaden that scope too. From so from women, so people of color, social minorities, immigrants, veterans, just kind of an interesting interesting challenges there. And I think, as a group, for example, women are way over mentored and under sponsored. Hmm. Okay, hmm. so people like to tell other people like how to do things, but you know I've noticed that a lot of men that want to get engaged in this, it's like how can you sponsor a woman entrepreneur or a social minority or person of color to actually have access to some of the networks that are available, and I just I think these are all things that are work in progress. I would not profess to be an expert. I'm I'm just trying to make sure that as a part of our success that we don't miss opportunities because of some something that we're not seeing or that we're not open to. And I just think it requires a lot of uh, reflection and a- awareness to try and do that, right? Yeah, I think try to take what makes you unique and the fact that there maybe aren't a lot of women out there pitching or as many to work it into your pitch somehow. Like, how can you use that to your advantage? How can you make it stand out? You know, I don't think you need to, you know, I think you can focus on the business, but just as much as a lot of entrepreneurs, no matter who you are, need to try to weave some sort of story into the company as as to why you exist. You need to use everything at your disposal to kind of tell that story. And that leads right into the marketing of a lot of the companies you see. And that's one of the biggest challenges today is there's more and more SaaS companies out there. There's more companies of almost all kinds out there today. It becomes harder to tell your unique story. Are there things you see 
you know, these days that maybe you didn't see as much 20, 30 years ago in marketing or some things that you're like, man, I can't believe I'm giving like this advice about, you know, you got to really focus on your Twitter account, you know, or something yeah, like that marketing yeah. that you couldn't even imagine 10, 15 years ago. I think, yeah. So I wasn't really doing this 30 years ago yeah. um, in, in this but way. But you were working as an executive, yeah. starting businesses, selling so, businesses. So I would say, let's look at the last 10 or 15 years. And I think there's just way, way more chatter and noise, right? And kind of the flip side of that is there's way more data, hmm. right? So there's way more information available to companies. And it seems to me that small companies that are say emerging growth companies and larger companies almost have the same need whether they're small or large they still need that data and they still need to know what's going on in order to manage expenses in order to track whether it's effective so that's one piece of it that i've noticed and i think because there's so much noise marketing something telling an authentic story also becomes important and so one of the things that I've noticed, and I was even thinking about this last night because I was buying some gear for a trip I'm taking in September, and I was looking at the reviews. So, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, you had like maybe consumer reports or something like that, right? (laughs) And now you can go on and you can find, you know, people that are experts that are reviewing this stuff. So things like reviews and brand ambassadors and things like that that weren't being done quite so consciously and so specifically there there wasn't even like a clear professional discipline around that in the same way that there is is today which creates interesting problems for and opportunities for growth companies too because it's like you have to be pretty sophisticated to cut through that noise and when it comes down to most of these companies don't have a huge amount of money right so then where where do you most effectively invest and that's different for every company. That's what I was curious. Do you find most of your companies tend to be going in-house to solve these problems? Are they engaging with agencies? Is it some hybrid relationship? It's all over the map. But I will say the other thing is I've met so many people that are like, I'm a digital media strategist. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's like, so how how these companies sort through that decision, I, I think is it's really difficult. And a lot of people, they may have strengths in the area of the company that they, you know, the industry that they've started their company in, but maybe not necessarily experience with with that level of strategy. And I also think early on, earlier on in my career, marketing people were maybe somewhat data-driven, but it's becoming, you know, it's just much, much more necessary for people to understand those those stats and that information to make good decisions because there's so many different directions you could go in terms of the marketing spend from my perspective. Is marketing one of those big segments of a company or parts of a company that during a pitch or when you're learning about a company you're really honing in on? If yeah. so, are there certain things you're you're looking at, you know, is it would it be helpful if somebody pitching you to put like here's how many visitors a day we have to our website or to our blog? Are there certain things that you're that are standing out to you in pitches like, okay, these guys kind of look like they know what they're doing marketing-wise. Yeah, actually that, we love those kinds of statistics because you can also see how, th- how companies are ranked from their competitors, right? If they have more website visits or people are staying on the site longer, those kinds of things. 
And it's true, so when we encounter a company, they've had some early proof points, right? They've, they have a little bit of revenue, so they've found a bit of product market fit, and they're trying to crack that code of, now we've got this product or service, we've got a little bit of information about what works, but what are the levers in terms of marketing and sales that we need to press? It's almost like they have a soundboard and they're mixing the sound yeah. you know, to say, this needs to be louder, this needs to be quieter. And I think that there's both an art and a science to that. And so they're all trying to crack that code because at that point where we encounter them, they're trying to accelerate through that growth curve. And the thing that will often accelerate them through that growth curve is the effective sales and marketing effort. So, you know, we we look at all these companies and everyone's working on that specific thing because that's how you that's how you scale your revenues, right? I think it's really interesting and it ties well with an, a point that we kind of talked around around pitching too and having that really well thought out defined unique value proposition yes. and the and the market kind of the market fit, the marketing perspective behind that. And I know even we've struggled with, you know, initially when study budget came into being it it was one very specific uvp and now even in the last year i think we've changed our marketing message three times and so that kind of adjusts our marketing levers too because you know we're looking and honing different audiences or we're we're testing out new things like you said so it's it's really interesting to hear from the that perspective as well yeah and i think that requires a lot you have to be nimble to to do that right and so in a way Smaller companies and emerging growth companies have an advantage there, and that you can you can test. It's not like you're it's not like you're turning a three year program or something, right? It's like did that work? No, that didn't work. Well, did we give it long enough? Right? That's always yeah. the question. Yep. Did we give it long enough to stick? <laughs> totally. And then, or did we do it well enough? Yes. Right. Is there something else? Like, did we miss some critical critical feature? And I I just think it's really interesting what's happening in this particular arena with all the information that's available, right? Because it makes it, in some ways, it makes it easier to think about how to do it. In some ways, it makes it harder because it, it seems like there's so many potential paths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so any any info bubbling up from your portfolio companies that are like, oh, LinkedIn, that's where we're seeing the traction, or is it still email marketing or and some of those core tenants? You know that's a it's a great question, and I don't have that level of granular mm-hmm. granular yeah. view. I would say so in terms of keeping my network informed. That right now I get a lot of traction from utilizing LinkedIn mm-hmm. and Twitter to some extent. Mm-hmm. Julie's again, famous for her selfies <laughs> that she yeah. puts on Twitter with <laughs> to, with people around town, entrepreneurs she meets. I'm trying to meet everybody and take a selfie, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I actually on the um, Startup Ben blog. I've done Julie Selfie blog yeah. uh, periodically throughout the last two years, and it's been really fun Q and A with different local leaders. Yeah. Well, Julie, thanks so much for taking the time. I know we got to get you out of here, but like I said again, we're being here in Bend. We're really lucky to have people like you thinking about the community and and bringing one of the important aspects to a startup community that we need, which is capital. Hey, I appreciate that, and thanks for having me in today. So that wraps up our interview with Julie Harrelson. John, I have to ask, if you were to go back and pitch Julie one more time, what did you take away from this podcast that would help you with that? I think I would have adjusted some of my sales projections and some of the hyperbole I feel 
felt compelled to add to my deck at the time and that you hear investors want to see and everybody wants to see. And I might have taken a little bit more of a conservative approach with some of those hearing the way Julie said, you know, she she knows a lot of those numbers are inflated or junk anyway. So she's looking for some kind of more of a middle ground. So I'd say that probably be the biggest thing I'd switch. Secondly, what I was surprised with when I went through the process with, with VCs is you think, you know, before you go through the process, they truly want to see super early ideas, that they want to see things before anybody else is seeing them. But in reality, a lot of these VCs want to see core business metrics any other business person would want to see. Do you have revenue? Do you have customers? Do you have a marketing plan? They focus on a lot more of the nuts and bolts of the business type stuff than the flowery things you might see, especially VCs down in the Bay Area or Silicon Valley that have to fund these massive ideas to make their funds work. With more regional investors like Julie, she can bet on more companies with better fundamentals in some cases at these early stages. So they're going to be looking for those true like business unit economics and less about like, we're going to be a billion dollar company in two years or whatever it might be. Now, I've never pitched a VC. I've never pitched for funding, but I also really loved her commentary on inclusion of, you know, well, diversity essentially in, yeah. in the, the startup world. I think it's, I think she has a really great perspective and a really good drive to, to diversify or fund more diverse organizations. And I think there's a benefit in that. I think, you know, when you are not just a certain type or group of people, then you have people who can recognize flaws from other perspectives in your product or your marketing or whatever. And and that kind of diverse group really comes together to bring the best product, the best marketing, the best, et cetera, to the market. So I loved her commentary on that. Yeah, same. Julia's a person we're lucky to have here in Central Oregon and somebody that along with Cascade Angels is going to help to shape the tech conversation in Bend and the types of companies that come from the Northwest in general. All right. So remember to rate, review the podcast. You can get all show notes at blog.shape.io slash podcast. We'll put some links to some of the articles Julie mentioned about some of the demographics and stats that are out there. And until next time. Over and out from Bend, Oregon.